Uh, um, oh, Jan Brunk is praying for us, and you know, thank you, Jan. You know, my sister in every single way. So, uh, would you lift up the sermon? Would you lift up another church, Jan? Thank you, Lord. I don't need to um, to petition you much more than what has already been said on behalf of all this beautiful family. Uh, we we hear your heart. We feel your joy. We feel your pleasure, and we know that you have, um, you're speaking to us now. We just receive that word before we even hear it. We come expectantly knowing that you have spoken a word, and we pray for Kurt, Lord Jesus, that he would trust you, that he would be bold, and that he would be anointed to lead us as you have led him to reach, as you're leading him to lead to push us to reach others. <laughs> That's our word, did it recognize? Did you recognize that, guys? Anyway, thank you, Lord. Uh, lift up the church in Minsk, Belarus. Amen. Uh, Christ for the Nations Church. Lord, uh, give them a special word today to know how much you love them, how much you have carried the Father's heart to the whole nation and that you are using them in a big way to make a big impact for your kingdom. And bless them in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at men and women and roles and so on. Because, and we're going to be doing, and again, I've said we've, many of you have heard some or most of this, but not maybe this way because we're going to be pulling one thing out of a very complex, very deep, very much more multifaceted issue, which is men and women and what God ordained and how and so on. And we're going to talk a little bit about women preaching and all that kind of stuff. But I want us to see there's this theme that he's been doing all morning about something that you're going to see in the sermon. So with that, if we're going to understand men and women, we have to go back to the garden, right? because that's where God established everything at the get-go. And so it starts off like this. Um, then God said, let us make man in our image. This is the sixth day of creation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the ski. I just want you to see something. Let us make man, singular, in our image, but it could be mankind, but it's man, after our likeness and let them. See how he goes from singular to plural? Now watch that have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill all the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, every living thing that moves on the earth. So them, 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 them. There is the him too, okay? And we're gonna see that that's, that has value, but here's what I wanna point out to you, okay? It is them that have dominion. Adam and Eve have dominion. Here's what I wanna do. You see, because we know that's true and because we hear about Adam first and so on, we make a mental leap in our minds and we say, well, Adam, because he was first and Eve was second, Adam has dominion over Eve. 
And then we have a fall that we're gonna get to that would support that in a way. But here's the thing that we have to do if we're being careful. There is nothing about one being greater than another in this passage. Nothing. There is them being greater than the creatures and to have dominion over them. But there is nothing about Adam having dominion over Eve whatsoever. Not here. Now that's at the very beginning. And then we have to, in order to make this more clear, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. Now, many of you have heard the word kenigdo, or neged is the root word, but kenigdo, this is that word that means how she was created. We're going to look at what that means in one second, but you're going to see that word again. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky. Now, what's he doing here? He said it earlier, I'll make a helper as his complement. So he's forming the creatures. Are these going to be his helper, his complement? So he brought each of them to the man to see what he would call it. Whatever the man called the living creature, this is part of dominion, was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, birds of the sky, every wild animal. But, the, but for the man, no helper was found as his Kenigdo, as is Neged. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs, closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man says, now this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is one that is me. Okay? Now, complement this word Neged, in front of. We need to be really good on this word. Otherwise, misunderstanding happens. Neged means in front of. Face to face, it means the same as. It doesn't mean exactly the same, but it means of the same substance, the same. It is the equality. It is the thing that is equal to, his equal, his complement. The thing that, the thing that helps. And by the way, helper right there, that word... God is also called our helper. So it's not just that the woman would be the helper to the man who's the greater. It's that the woman would help the man and the man would help the woman as God helps us. See it? So, there, so the, the very, very strong sense in all of Genesis is there is not God's ordained creation. That's a very important way to talk about it. His ordained creation is not one being greater than the other or over the other. That is not in the beginning. And it's not in the end. Now, this is just one scripture. We could talk about this in a lot of ways, but I'm going a little quickly because I want to get to the point and spend some time there. This is, like I say, a very deep subject. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. I had a beautiful conversation with a good friend of this congregation who's moved away and was talking about women eldership and so on. And we were talking about this and he was saying, but does this really have to do with heaven? Isn't this more about salvation? And the answer is yes, it is very much about salvation. But if you know your theology, it's also pointing towards the truth, which is this is heaven now as much as possible. And heaven is very much a place where there is no more Jew or Gentile. Now notice, Jew chosen, Gentile not. Slave, lesser than, free. So he's saying there is no more, there is no hierarchy in heaven. 
There's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And in God, that's exactly it, right? We are one as the Father is one. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is one greater than the other? No, not at all. They're different, but none's greater than the other. See, and you can say, well, maybe the Father is, but we'll get to that in a second, okay? He's not. They're all co-equal. They're all, again, of the same substance, equal. That's what they are. So the point is, is what we've got is, is we've got no hierarchy in the beginning, created order, and in the end, God restores no hierarchy in heaven. We're all one. We're all equal. Okay, there are differences, but we're all equal. Now, with that in mind, there is, in fact, a hierarchy that gets established, but it isn't what God's intent was. It happens because of the fall. In particular, what happens in the fall is, is that the nature of mankind and the nature of womankind, of men and of women, is revealed in the very beginning. And we know that for sure because of this. When God pronounces a judgment on Eve and on Adam, he's not just pronouncing a judgment on Eve the person, he's pronouncing a judgment on womankind. But, and this is key to remember because we just don't, he's also pronouncing a judgment on mankind. There's a judgment on both that's taking place for a reason. So let's start looking at what that is so that we can get there. And again, we're moving right along. If you, by the way, if you struggle with this, by all means, get in touch with me. This is, I love talking about theology. So, you know, call me, we'll talk about it. I can work it through, okay? You may not agree with me, that's fine, okay? But, but bottom line, love to talk to you if you want to. All right, now, now we're to the fall place. Now the servant was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now there's lots of theology in here that we're not doing, we've done before. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree, of the, of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that part, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was where? Wandering around somewhere else? He was with her right there when this was happening. Really key. And he ate. Now, woman's nature is leader. You cannot argue this point. You can argue the second one a little bit, but it's hard to do, particularly when you start looking at the whole of everything. But it takes a little more time than what we have today. But you cannot argue that woman reveals herself as leader. Why? Because they're both there, and who's the one who's leading the conversation? Who's the one who's leading the interaction? Who's the one who's leading at this moment in time trying to figure out about this tree thing? Not only that, but she reveals herself again as a leader when having eaten, she says, here, eat. <laughs> That's what a leader does. He, 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 the leader tells the other person to eat and the other person eats. 
So what she got revealed to at that moment in time, unarguably, is leader. The part that I'm going to have to ask for a little grace on is the second part, which is she also revealed herself to be a nurturer. Now, I can make this case. I have made this case many times in here. I will make it again if you want me to, but I can't do it today because it takes a little more time and I don't have it. Okay? So what I'm asking you to do is to understand this principle. In leadership, proper leadership is nurturing. These are two sides, same coin. That's not how it was, say, in the 1950s, when men were leading everything and corporate books about leadership had to do with org charts. Who was over who? We still have org charts in churches, but if you look at any management book anymore, what's being talked about is nurturing. Jack Welch, who was known as Neutron Jack, and the reason why was because they said he could go into a company and kill all the people and leave the building standing. So that's a pretty hardcore guy, right? Read his book. Is it called Winning? I think that's the title of it, right? It's called Winning. And in that book, it's positively pastoral. He's talking about how as a leader, you have to care for people. And that this is a dynamic that has not been in modern leadership at all. And Jack Walsh becomes the guy who raises up 60% of the Fortune 500 leaders at one point in time. Nurturing. Leadership is nurturing. What does nurturing mean? Raising up. So I'm making this case just briefly right here, but I want to show you something, which is the woman who carries the child has in her an innate nature to nurture to take care of the child. It's not to say that men can't nurture. We're going to see that. It's not to say that all women are, are really good nurturers because we do live in a fallen world. And there's lots of damage that can be done to people and so on. But just when you're talking about human nature, what's being revealed in the garden is, is that the woman is a leader and that is also a nurturer. Now, the problem is she didn't follow, Right? God said, don't eat it. You may, but don't. So if she was following well, she wouldn't have eaten, right? No matter what the serpent said. So to the woman, God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth your children. And understand something about Genesis always. It's expansive. It's talking about labor, and this is true, right? Anybody ever had a baby? It hurts, right? So that's true. But do understand that it's also talking about setting down patterns, and it's talking about that when you raise a child, there will be painful moments. The raising and growing of a child is going to be something that is going to create pain. That is also in the sense of the text. You don't have to agree with me on that. I don't care. Here's the part. It's not critical to the point. I don't mean I don't care about you. Okay. I think a second ago, I was thought to be a nurturer, so hey, whatever. <laughs> Your desire shall be contrary. And I use the ESV here, and I love the ESV in that it is extremely literal. Sometimes it'll miss in its literalness a bigger principle, but here they really get the translation right in a way that most people have not heard or read. Because most people don't read this, and most translations don't even have this sense in it. Watch this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he's going to rule over you. 
Your desire will be contrary to your husband. What's that mean? Why is he doing that? <laughs> Doesn't he know? Can't he see? What's wrong with him? This is not right. Here, let me take it. The natural leader is critiquing the unnatural leader. So what's happening is, is what he's saying is, even though your desires are going to be contrary, I want something, you're going to be under someone. Why? Why? It should be painfully obvious right now. The natural leader nurturer did one thing wrong. They should have led, they should have nurtured, but they failed to follow. So God has said, I'm going to put you in a position to learn to follow, and to love following, to see its value, and to get its, to, to honor the value of following as much as you do, the value of leading and nurturing. There's nothing wrong with leading, and there's nothing wrong with nurturing. He's simply saying there's a value in following that you haven't figured out yet, and I'm going to give you a reason to figure it out. I'm going to put you under somebody who's not always going to do things the way that you want, and you're going to learn something in there. Now, there's lots. There's, a, there's about three more sermons that come out of that statement right there. Okay? When you really learn how to lead from under, you've learned what Jesus did when he washed feet. Okay, this is important. Now, to the man who is a natural follower, why didn't he say no, right? But moreover, what he revealed himself as is not a nurturer. Why didn't he not only say no, I'm not going to, God said don't, but why didn't he also say I love you, Eve, and put his arm around her and say, I don't know what's going to happen right now. God said that something bad would happen, and I don't know what's going to happen, but I can tell you I'm in it with you. You remember God raises up some nurturers in history, Jesus Christ being one, but Moses being another, as an archetype for Jesus that was to come. And here's what both of them did as leaders. If you're going to judge them, take me first. That's what Moses said. That's what Adam could have said if he was covering, if he was nurturing, if he was loving. He would have said to God, don't take her. If you're going to take her, take me too. You see it? Put himself in there in a way that is risk. Loving her. Why didn't he do that? Because he's a follower and he's not a nurturer. And here's the key to that. That's not God's nature and image. We're made to be in his image, right? And what is God? He is a leader and a follower. Wait a minute, God's not a follower. Oh, yes, he is. The father says to the son, go. What does the son say? Okay. Even at the garden at one point in time when he really doesn't want to do it and sweats his drops of blood, he follows. You see it? Jesus tells the spirit, and the Spirit does. The Spirit tells Jesus, and Jesus follows. So God is leading and following. See it? Now, the other thing, though, in everything he does, always God is a nurturer. Let me tell you something right now. This is a super important theological principle. If you ever come up with an understanding of God that has God not being a nurturer, you have missed your theology. Whatever your understanding is that doesn't lead to a deeper understanding of how God nurtures us, 
you have missed who he is. That is as fundamental to his character as the fact that he is love. In fact, love and nurturing are the same term. Okay? So to the man who is a follower, God says... To Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you listened to her voice, not mine. You followed her, not me. You shall not eat of it. Uh, I command you not to eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, the ground. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat. Remember, in the garden, no sweat, no work. But now it's all going to be work, and this is key, it's not just going to be work for you to provide for yourself, but do remember God has put somebody under you to take care of. The minute that God puts Eve under, he puts Adam over. It is unnatural for the leader to be under, it is unnatural for the follower to be over. Right? God says to the woman who is leader nurture, you will be under learning to follow while still nurturing. To the man who is the follower and not the nurture, you will be over learning to lead, which is to say learning to care for, which is to say learning to nurture while still following. What's the key variable in all of this? This is what I said. This is what's been going on all morning here by the Lord. Nurturing. The thing... When you guys clapped, you don't know. You do know. But that's just love. It's costly. <laughs> That's the problem. That's why it gets a clap. Unfortunately, it shouldn't. Right? It should just be what we're all doing all the time, and it should be. That's what heaven is going to be, is love manifest. But what happened was, is we've just loved. And if anybody has wanted to grow, we said, we're trying to grow too, and just come alongside, and together we have grown. I have learned as much or more than any person in this body. I've just tried to love. That's Julie all the way, right? Okay. If a man is having to learn, and we're focusing in on the man, not the woman today. But if the man is having to lead, how? Who would be our example of how we're supposed to lead? Jesus. So Jesus is our example. And what does Jesus do? Everything he does raises us up, which is to say nurture us. Everything that Jesus does is raising us up, right? You have sinned and horribly screwed up. And what does Jesus do? Dies for you and sends the Holy Spirit to work through how do you get out of that so that you don't be in that anymore. Sets you free, forgives you. To raise you up. Do you see this? Always, God is always raising. God is life. He's always bringing life. 
He's never bringing that other thing. Now, watch this. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives exactly. This is the message because he catches it perfectly. Exactly as Christ did for the church. Go all out for your wives. You're not in a marriage where you're kind of doing what you want and some things that she needs. He's saying be all about going all out for her. Exactly as Christ did for the church, which is you. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love, watch, makes the church whole, makes it more than it would have been. His words evoke beauty. The things that he does evoke things, bring things out that are beautiful. Everything he does and says is designed to do what? Bring out the very, 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 very God best. Dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. You see it? What's a man supposed to be doing? Raising her up. Raising her up. So if we've established this principle, and I hope we have at this point in time, now watch this. I've said this story before. Um, this is a useful fiction. You know what that means? It means this is not how it is at all, but we're saying that this is how it is because it brings out a point that's important that helps us understand this point. Okay? You go to heaven, you and your wife, and daddy loves his little boy, so he's talking with his little boy, and you know, he loves his little boy, and they're having a great conversation and everything else, but you know, the heart of every daddy is for his little girl. So at some point in time, he says to the son, hey, where's my daughter? Where's, where's my little girl? And the son steps aside, and at that moment in time, there's one of three women that will come forth. The first one is beaten down. Physically, verbally, emotionally, however it is, you have, been, you have been repressed, restricted. You have been brought down. See it? Hurt, harmed, literally harmed. The person, the man that does that is to be judged negatively. But then there's a second gal that can come forth, and this is the one that, frankly, most of Christendom teaches us to produce, and that's emaciated. What does emaciated mean? Anorexic, starving, not growing, not full, not rich, not healthy, not mature, not radiant and dazzling, not having grown. Having been protected, protected so beautifully they never had to grow in anything. Now Christendom literally teaches that in a lot of its it's sort of passing away at this point in time. But that's very much 30, 40 years ago. If you would have heard a teaching about men and women and what a husband's supposed to be, it was supposed to be such a protector that basically she was never harmed in any way, shape, or form. And the problem with that is, how does God grow us? Right? It's not his choice to harm you, but you make decisions that harm you, and he grows you through it. So harm is very much a part of growth. And you cannot protect your wife in such a way that she doesn't actually grow. It's not God. So what's the third woman that can come forth? Full, rich, the fullness of Proverbs 31 woman and much more. And read Proverbs 31 woman if you want to understand the fullness that God intends the female to be. 
because we can get from a false understanding of Christianity and roles and so on about women, we can get a very much un-Proverbs 31-ish kind of woman and say that that's the woman that God wants, and it's not. This is a woman who's in business. This is a woman who's doing all kinds of things for her family, making money, doing all kinds of stuff, getting up early, working businesses, doing everything, okay? So the third possible woman is full and rich. She's mature. She's healthy. Now to this man, the father turns to the son and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant, but well done, good and faithful steward. You stewarded the most precious gift that I had. Well, you didn't bury it. You invested in it. And it came to a return, a rising up. See the themes that we're doing here? They're going to become really important here in one second. Everything that God is doing is always telling us that there is heaven and he's wanting us to taste it now. We cannot live it fully in a fallen, corrupted world. Do you understand that? So there is, for example, the roles, the hierarchy that was established at the fall. There are those roles. The, the husband leading, the woman following, unnatural for both. While never forgetting, always being mindful of true to what God ordained in the world. In fact, here's what we're saying. See, God is doing this in every possible way right now. Here's what God says to us. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here's what he's saying. Another way of, trans another way of understanding that. Heaven and the things of heaven are right here, right now. Now, can we enter into fully right now? Like we will in heaven? Of course not because we live in a fallen world. But here's what we're to be doing as Christians. We're to be finding the things of God and bringing them into our world as fully and completely as we possibly can. We are instruments of bringing life, of bringing the good things of God, the things that God wants and has and is. Bringing that to people in a way that raises them up, makes them happy, brings them to joy. This is who we are supposed to be. All of us. So then how can Paul say, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This is one of the hardest scriptures in all of, this is one of the hardest verses in all of scripture to a woman. If it doesn't somehow hit you, I don't know why, it ought Okay, it ought. Now here's what we've just done though. We've just taken the whole counsel of scripture in order to understand a verse, and it's to be fair, it's not just one verse. This is the most dramatic of them, but there are other verses that talk about women and teaching and so on. There are a couple others. But here's what I wanna do right now. I want you to understand something. There's two ways of understanding right now this particular verse. Here's what one of them is. Paul is speaking to a cultural problem found especially at Ephesus in that day, which is no longer applicable. This is Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of Ephesus. This is a letter being written into Ephesus. Ephesus has, as does Corinth and other cities in that region, they have a temple. The one in Ephesus happens to be Artemis, which is also called Diana, but that's not really the right terminology. But nonetheless, it's, that's how it's known. And the point is, is that women head up that temple. Women are used to being in leadership positions in Ephesus. Is not an issue 
Women are natural leaders. They have risen to their leadership role and they are leading there in that temple. Now the problem is that temple is a pretty ungodly place. At the very worst and at the most likely, it's a place of cultic prostitution. They're using sex in a way that gains a lot of finances and value and worth and so on for the men travelers that are traveling these trade routes. There is some argument about how much cultic prostitution there actually was, but either way, the thing that we know is it was a very, very bad, perverted, corrupted religion that was being taught by women elders. Now, let's be careful about this, by women priestesses. Let's be careful. Men have done a lot of pastoring that has been evil and bad and wicked, okay? So you can't just say because they did something bad, men don't do it, men do it too. Okay, they get into perverted, corrupted places. But the point is, is Paul is making an argument about what? If he wanted to make a cultural argument, here's what he would have said. You know Ephesus where these women have taken control and things have gotten all out of culture? It's not a good place and so I don't want that to happen. That would be a cultural argument. Now I want you to understand something. Foursquare's doctrinal statement uses this. I don't mean to undermine your confidence in Foursquare, but it's just an area that I don't think they've got it right. And this is just me speaking. Maybe I shouldn't have put that on tape, but bottom line. <laughs> but this is very common for those who want to say that women should be able to teach. What they do is they get rid of it by a cultural argument. And the problem with that is, is Paul doesn't make a cultural argument. He makes a garden argument. It goes back to the beginning and to the womankind and mankind argument. So to say that it's cultural is not correct and does not answer the question that Paul is raising, more accurately, that God is raising through Paul. So there's an issue that's not being dealt with when you just dismiss the scripture by saying, oh, that was just for a certain time and framework and it's not a problem anymore. Okay? Now the other way of doing it is women can never preach to men. You pretty much have this as your two basic big options. Well, Paul said it. You, you know, I don't let her teach and I don't let her have authority and so you can't do it. Now here's, here's where we're going, okay? What if there's a third way? Here, here, always remember something about theology. Whenever there's a long-standing argument in theology, it typically is because both sides can be supported biblically and so our resolution must be true to both. In the early church, we, ha we argued about whether God was three or one. Eventually, we resolved it by saying he's three and one. And that was the correct resolution. In today's world, we have an argument that's been going on for, since the Reformation, which basically says this, is it predestination or is it free will? Which is it? Are you saved because God chose you to be saved and made you saved? Or are you, or are you saved because you chose it? Which is it? See, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's not one or the other, it's both. Both are true. And Christianity is filled with paradoxes as we say all the time. The sign of a healthy mind is the ability to hold on to a paradox. You don't resolve a paradox by reducing truth of one side or the other. You don't resolve the scriptures that speak to free will by contextualizing them out of place so that all you have left are the scriptures you wanna have about predestination. And you don't resolve in favor of free will by reducing the truth of all the predestination scriptures. And here's what I wanna say. You do not solve the problem of women in ministry, the issue of women in ministry, by 
simply taking the couple of verses that say it and being just straight out on that, but ignoring the whole rest of the witness of Scripture, which I've taken quite a long time here to try and get you to see. The witness of Scripture is what? God does what? Nurtures, which is what? Raising up. I just, I just want to, just so that you'll get it right here. Just, just forget about all theology and everything right now. This is not the argument. This is not how you should ever decide theology. But I want you to see something in your heart that's already ringing. Do you believe that it's God's character and nature to have essentially, do you know what um, hobbling means? You take a horse, you don't want him to run, and so you put a chain between two of the feet so they can't stretch out and run. Or hamstringing means you don't want something to run, so you cut the hamstring so it can't run. Do you believe that it's God's character and nature to take one half of humankind and hamstring them or cobble them? Is that his nature? Is that who he is? Moreover, watch this. Does it make you say glory to God that he would do that? You see it? Now, that's not a good theological argument right there. That's how logic gets in the way of theology all the time. But it does help us because the Holy Spirit is bearing witness inside of us as to the truth of certain things. So let me show you another way of doing theology entirely. This is a helpful question. Is our resolution to a problem, a, a thing like women in ministry, is it ever more finite, legalistic, and reductionistic? Does it bring a half of the human race down? Or does it do the opposite of that? Is, does our understanding, our resolution, bring us into God's cart gloriously? Because here's Paul in the most theological book in all the Bible, and two times, it's actually more than that, but two times I'm going to show you where Paul is working through very difficult issues that have a lot of nuance and, and issues and so on, and Paul is wrestling with them this way and wrestling with them this way, and people are hearing what he's saying, and they're saying, well, does this mean then that we should sin more so that we can experience God's grace more? And he says, of course not. You see him wrestling with a difficult thing? Of course not, but it still means that grace is grace. And when he finally comes to the conclusion of this, about what God has done, what it makes him do is celebrate. It makes him cry out, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? He's talking about God's predestination and our free will and how they have come together in a way that God's plan is always executed, that God's will is always executed, that his heart is always executed, that his love is always manifest. And so Paul goes into this just glorious, ecstatic utterance where he says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. See it? It makes you soar, doesn't it? That's theology properly done. 
It makes you sore because you come to understand something about God. In two more chapters, he's going to be talking about Jew and Gentile and how these things God does. And he even talks about the fact that he's going to provoke the Jews to a jealousy through their rejection of him by being with the Gentiles. And when he gets done with that argument, which is also filled with difficulty, when he gets done, he says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Amen. You see it? Theology properly done, ought to, you, ought to, you ought to have a revelation and go, oh my, using the word rightly, God, right? Oh my God, look who you are. Oh my gosh, I never even could have considered that. That is unbelievable. We got caught in an argument, this versus that, and we were beating the pulp out of each other, and suddenly you come and show us the way that is you, that we had not properly understood, that we had not come to, and it makes me love you. It makes me glorify you. It makes me go ecstatic because of who you are and I've discovered you to be. Yet again, you see it? This is real theology. This is what it is. This is what I've been doing for 20 years here. Going to the Lord all the time and asking him and asking him and asking him and asking him and find a revelation that made me go, oh my God, I love God more today than I did yesterday. Come here and get to tell you that. Now, with that in mind, I want to propose something to you, for real. Has God hidden a test right in the middle of everything, directly affecting 50% of all humankind, in fact, affecting us all? Has God put a test right in the middle of the whole of humankind? Have we learned to be like him and are we in his image? Are we like him bringing the glorious things of heaven into the world now as much as possible? Have we, especially men, learned to be nurturers? Now here's what I have to say about women in ministry. I've said it before. This is why we have women elders, and this is why we have women preaching from the pulpit. But let me say something. I do not take the easy out and say it's a cultural thing. There's no problem with women preaching. It was a different time, a different age. No problem. Forget about it. No, no issue. I do not say that, ever. Most people who say that women can preach say that. And I think they're wrong to say it to their harm. Because there is a thing that God has said needs to be respected. Men need to learn how to be nurturers. They're an unnatural thing to be, to be leaders and to be nurturers. But women still have to learn following and the beauty in it. So we cannot ignore that. We cannot simply set that aside. But here's what we can do. Josh Morris said one of the most profound things that's ever been said in this building in speaking to men several years ago about his wife, Justine, who is phenomenally capable. Josh is phenomenally capable too, by the way. But here's what Josh said. 
in the things of ministry, my wife is extremely gifted. And that has been in the past a threat to me. It has made me feel less. And I have contemplated bringing her down that I would still be over. And what he said in front of this congregation was, that is evil and it's not God's heart. He said, my heart is, what I've learned, and this is the challenge he was giving to men, I believe it might have been on a Father's Day, but he was saying to men, I'm telling you, she doesn't have to come down. You have to go up. Step up. There is a tendency when leaders lead for followers to drop out. There is a tendency when women go into ministry for men to drop out. Look at most of the churches in America. The majority of churches in America are female essentially led, even if they don't have a female pastor. But the females do all the work, they do all the committees, they do all the stuff. That is not Lake Sam. There's a whole other dynamic taking place here. The largest church in the country, which is growing at a faster rate than any other church in the country, was built by two people from Procter Gamble who said, nothing in the church relates to me as a man in the corporate world, so we're going to build a church for men in the corporate world. Now, I don't think that church is balanced. I love the church. My nephew actually goes to it, and they are a great church. But they've corrected and corrected the pendulum in a way that swings from one side to the other. What really are women's roles in that church? Well, there's not any pastors, women pastors. There's not any, you know, I mean, now the men are flourishing in a way that they don't typically. We had that same thing happen here with Mark Driscoll. He was calling very strongly and definitely to men to quit sinning and to step up. And men responded beautifully. But it was unbalanced. Here's the thing that I come to you and say, and I hope that this makes you feel, I hope this makes you fall in love with God more and see how beautiful he is. I really believe this with all my heart. God has hidden a thing, hoping for us to find it, which is that men as nurturers are supposed to be raising up women as high as they can possibly go. I'm always asking women to be mindful of the follow. In fact, I would go to the case of saying it this way. We have a covering. Now, I have a covering. But when it talks about it in Ephesians and so on, it talks about, in fact, if you look at it carefully in the Bible, what you'll see is, is that women are under the covering of their fathers for as long as they live, unless until they get a husband, in which case they're under his covering. Now, you can see that as a bad thing, and in today's world, a lot of people would think of that as being a negative. But again, I want to say there's a beauty in following that the Lord knows that he's trying to bring. And so I would ask all the women in this place to be mindful of something. When you step out, the man tends to, when you step up, the man tends to step out. I would also ask you to say, to be mindful of, and the women in this church are, to be mindful of how important it is that you nurture him by coming under and washing his feet and seeing him raise up whether that be your husband or whether that be some other man in the church. But this isn't a sermon for women today. This is a sermon for men. 
And here's what I'm asking you men to do. Step up. <laughs> Become nurturers. Raise women up. I am raising women up. I believe with all of my heart that when I get to heaven, God is going to say, and Justine knows how hard she's fought me on ever being a pastor in this church. But I have systematically and theologically gone after. And she's at a place to where she's saying, I think I am, and I think I get it. And I think I'm understanding this beautiful thing about God, that he's raising everybody up all the time. You raise her up, she raises you up. You raise her up, she raises you up. You raise her up, she raises you up. And we go up and up and up and up to where we taste ever more fully, beautifully, and completely. God. Does this sound right? See, it's not one or the other. It's yes. And it's finding that way of walking in the yes that has a thing over here and a thing over here. And we walk in that thing until we start doing what is in God's heart for us to do. I really believe that this message, that our response to this message, that the church coming into this, we're going to stand before the Lord one day and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> right? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, please. I'm asking you now. We're all asking you now. As Peter said about Paul, there are things here hard to understand, but they're from you. I'm asking you in Jesus' holy and precious name that you, you would bring into our understanding things hard to understand, but that we would start living in the tension of them, both of us, men and women, both of us being mindful, both of us being thoughtful, but both of us urging each other, calling each other to greater works, lifting each other up, being like you, bringing life, bringing more, raising us up, taking us to places to where we can say to you, thank you. Thank you. It is amazing what you do and how you do it. Thank you, God, that you have given us this thing that you have caused all things to work together for good for those who believe and are called according to your word. And so in Jesus' holy and most magnificent name, God, we come to you right now and we ask you, anything that we have gotten wrong, correct it now. Anything that we have gotten right, light it up. Bring it into our hearts. Let every man in here take a whole nother level. There was a whole lot more in this sermon about nurturing your children, guys. I don't know if I'll ever get to it. But God, bring us to a place to where we start to nurture. Where the men start to nurture their wives, their children, people in their community, people at their work, that in every single way, all of us, yesterday we had a, a memorial in here for Pat McCluskey and what every single person talked about was how Pat was there at an important time in their life and helped them. God, let that be the testimony of every man's life in this place. Every woman's life too. But let it be the testimony of every man's life that in Jesus' most beautiful name you are raising us up. 
God, in Jesus' most magnificent name, we walk according to your lead and your lead only. As subtly, as nuanced, as beautiful as possible until we come to these moments of revelation and clarity where we go, oh, we see what you're doing and oh, that is magnificent. Having subjected men to what is unnatural and women to what is unnatural, you take us into a place to where it will cause us to bring each into glory. We will help each other come into glory. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And thank you, God. Reach in front of you and there are two cups. In the lower cup is bread. And we understand that our lives have been broken by choices that have been made. We have become reductionistic. We have gone to a finer, arcane, legalistic understanding that didn't go to beauty. It went to oppression. It went to restriction. It went to holding down. But God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, seeing the more, we go after the more, and we turn ourselves around. We see Christ raised up on the cross to heal us and to bring us into your beautiful fullness. And so in Jesus' name, knowing that we got it wrong, we put our finger in here and break it. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, knowing that you heal, we raise it up to you and we say, in Jesus' holy and precious name, by your stripes we are healed. And so bring healing to us, God. Take this cup together. And now in Jesus' most spectacular name is the cup in which is the life that you have for us. And I am asking you in Jesus' holy and precious name that you would cause us to live in the fullness of your life. Not our understanding, not our might, but your spirit. In Jesus' holy and precious name, take together. Thank you, ushers, for coming forward.